Okay, I'm glad you're here. And uh, I want to talk about a sort of a bit of a grab bag today. A couple of different thoughts that, uh, that I've come across that I want to share. And um, just want to start actually with a, with a story, uh, something that happened to me that uh, I was at, I was davening on Shabbos. This was actually last Shabbos. And um, there's a part in the, in the Suke de Zimra, sort of like the, the preliminary prayers before the sort of the official kickoff, their series of psalms that we say that uh, kind of open up your heart and get you focused on the davening. And, um, and anyway, so at the, at the Happy Minion of Los Angeles, where, where I daven, there's, a, there's, a, there's one section uh, where it's a singing section. And, um, you, and the sort of... The, the refrain is uh, it's called there's 26 different uh, lines in it and anyway there's a lot to it but it's actually part of the Haggadah too interestingly enough but anyway so we sing it and everything like that and we sing it to a certain melody and, and it's always very sort of uplifting and uh, the other week there were you know there was people were out of sync with what the with what the um, line was. So people were singing, it was like a mishmash. And it was like, for whatever reason, it was really bothering me because I couldn't focus because what's the line and, and everyone's singing something else and it was very kind of like uh, disoriented. And I was getting like a little bit like troubled by this and I wanted to figure out like what's going on exactly. So I stopped singing to just look around the room to figure out what's going on, and everyone was singing the right line. And I realized, oh, I'm the one who's been singing the wrong line. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> I was singing so loudly that it sounded like everyone was doing it, you know? So, so it was a very humbling moment, and, you know, it seems so uh, kind of symbolic, right? You know, sometimes it's sort of like, we think, like, why is he doing that, and why is he doing that, and why is she doing that? And meanwhile, we're the ones who are out of sync. You know, so, anyway, it's, it's, it's good to, uh, you know, next time you have a problem with someone, Right? And they're, inevi- they're inevitable and unavoidable. But next time it happens, next time it happens that you have a problem with someone, also ask yourself the question, what did I do? <laughs> what did I do? And if you are very open about that, you might actually find that you may have done some things that, that you don't automatically go to. When you, first it's sort of like, well, what did he do or what did she do? But then also ask, what did I do? And that can be enlightening. It can be an enlightening experience. Okay. So, so, uh, so going forward, I, I found a, uh, a Gomorrah uh, that I thought was very, very interesting. Um, this is just kind of a self-contained little thing, but, 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 but very, very interesting. Just, uh, you know, the, the Gomorrah is such a the Torah itself, but the Gomorrah is such a treasure chest, you know. In, in one line, they can just, like, just blow you away. And that line can be buried in the middle of nowhere. And it's a complete discussion about something else. All of a sudden, there's one line or one thought that is like, wow. So, so anyway, in this Gomorrah, it's in Ksubos, 
um, uh, page 104a. Okay, so that's Kuf Dalid, Amidalf. And it's talking about um, when Rebbe died. So Rebbe, um, to give you a sign of his greatness, he just was known as Rebbe, our teacher. They did, you didn't even have to say his name, and everyone knew you were talking about Yehuda Hanasi. So that shows you how, how great he was, that he was just called Rebbe, you know? So, um, so when, when, when he died, and by the way, he's the one who basically put together the whole Talmud as we know it now. Because he put together the, he codified the Mishnah, he was the one who wrote it down, which is a big deal because this is the oral law, this was not supposed to be written down. But he wrote it down. And, uh, because it was being forgotten. And it was a very great thing that he did, but it was, you know, a very radical step in terms of the development of Torah. Um, but anyway, anyway, he codified the Mishnah. And then the Mishnah was written in an incredibly terse way. And it was almost, um, almost mysterious in a way, because it, it was written in such a way where if you knew what it meant, then you had the notes right there and it was fine. But if you didn't know what it meant, then you needed an explanation. So what came was an explanation of the Mishnah, that's called the Gemara. If you ever want to know what's the Gemara, right? people talk about the Gemara. The Gemara is the fleshing out in the explanation of what the Mishnah says. And the Gemara and the Mishnah, when they're published together, which is all the time, pretty much, when the Gemara and the Mishnah are published together, that's called the Talmud. So if you, and what's, and, 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 anyway, so that's just some basic Jewish literacy there. Okay, so, here's the point. When Rebbe died, the rabbis made a decree that anyone who mentions that Rebbe is dead will be killed by the sword. Okay? So, that's intense. Like, normally speaking, we, if a great person dies, you want to publicize their death for, for many reasons. One reason is that people should come to hear the hespedim, the eulogies. Because the eulogies at a, at a, at a great person's um, leviah, at their funeral, inspire people tremendously to do, to do great things. So this is, you know, it, it says in, um, in the Mishnah, it says that... Um, Better to go to a, a, basically a funeral than a party. Because you're going to get way more out of it. It's going to be ultimately much more uplifting because you get a, a renewed sense of what you need to accomplish in life. Whereas sometimes at a party, the greatest thing that can happen at a party is that you forget your troubles for a while. You forget your life. You know? So, so anyway. So why would they make such a decree that anyone who mentions that Rebbe, the greatest person of that generation will be killed with a sword if you, if you publicize his death. So in the Art Scroll Talmud, there's an explanation that I thought was fascinating. Listen to this. Absolutely fascinating. It said that, um, you see, we have this, we, we have this core belief in Judaism. And, um, you know, I feel like one of my one of my missions in life is to publicize certain things about Judaism that people don't know. And it's so ironic because they're so fundamental 
um, to Judaism, and yet they're so widely unknown. Like, for instance, we believe in heaven. You know, we even have a concept of hell. It's not eternal damnation. It's more of a cleansing period on, on your way up to heaven. All souls, it's like, earth is on the bottom. Above earth is what we call Gehenna, translated as hell. And above that is heaven. And all souls, when they leave this world, they pass through Gehenna on the way to heaven. It's like a cleansing thing. And it's just a question of how long a person needs to stay there. Like, Sadiqim zip through. And other people spend longer, depending on how much soul cleaning they need. Okay? And what happens there exactly? Well, there, there are different explanations. Interestingly, I heard in the name of the Vilna Gon that, and this is, this is, you know, hundreds of years before television, that you're shown your entire life. That interesting? You know? You're shown your entire life, and the Baal Shem Tov says, you're actually shown two movies. doesn't use the word movie, but you're shown two versions of your life. The life that you led, this is in Gehenna, quote-unquote hell. The, the life that you led and the life that you could have led. And to the extent that they're in sync, that's glorious. But to the extent that they're not in sync, then it's like, I... That's the real soul cleansing. Realizing what, what we could have done. In fact, I heard one of the things that we have to do tshuva on, you know, when um, Rosh Hashanah time rolls around, I mean, but if we're aware of this, then we can avoid needing to do tshuva on this, uh, you know, fixing this. Which is, on all of the missed opportunities that we didn't take advantage of, very interesting, you know. We, you know, we, we get into certain patterns where we go, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that. And we think that's kind of normal. I'm talking about permitted things, of course. We think that's kind of normal. And, but on a deeper level, what was that I'm not going to do and what was that other thing I'm not going to do? Opportunities that Hashem created for me. Openings that Hashem created for me. You know? So, it's, it's, it's not a small thing to pass up on an invitation or something like that. And obviously a person has to know if it's proper and all the rest, but to, to take opportunities very, very seriously. Um, so, so that's, a, that's an explanation. So, so, so that's part of the soul cleansing, right? Um, but anyway, so that's, that's one of the fundamentals of, of, of Judaism that people don't know about, that we believe in heaven and, and also hell, but, you know, as a sort of intermediary passing through point. But, but that, that we believe in heaven is a huge thing. It's a giant foundation of, of what it means to be a Jew. Okay, that's one thing a lot of people don't know. Another thing a lot of people don't know is that we believe in reincarnation. You know, most of us, with very few exceptions, have been here one or several times before. It's another huge thing that people don't know about Judaism. And there are some rabbis, like the Sadia Gon is sort of like the most famous rabbi who, 
who disagrees with this opinion. So it's not 1,000% held by everyone. But the greatest rabbis of all, for the most part, have all held by reincarnation. Absolutely. Absolutely. From the Baal Shem Tov to the Vilna Gon, you know, you know, way, way back. So, um, another fundamental, and this is what I'm getting to, and this is getting back now to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, to Rebbe, is a resurrection of the dead. There's going to be, at the end of days, after Mashiach comes. And there are different understandings of how long after Mashiach comes, whether it's going to be pretty soon thereafter or a, a period of time after. A mass resurrection of the dead. Mass resurrection of the dead. Among the righteous of Israel and, and of the righteous of other nations, too, I would imagine. Since they have a share in heaven, too. Very beautiful thing about Judaism. That we say that the righteous of the world, of the non-Jews, go to heaven as well. We have a very beautiful vision of that, you know. Many religions, it's like, unless you believe in their guy, you've got no place in the afterlife. It's not the Jewish vision. It's not the Jewish vision. Which is very beautiful, actually. Um, so, but, but this idea of resurrection of the dead is, is, is a very big deal. And is a very core belief. And um, so now listen to this. So let's return back to the question. The question is, when Yehuda Hanasi died, the rabbis decreed that anyone who mentions, his, mentions that he died will be killed by the sword. So, so the explanation that I saw, which is like very beautiful actually, is that we are not allowed to pray that once someone dies, that they'll be resurrected. In other words, in the end of days, when, when, when the destiny of the world reaches that place, and there is this resurrection, mass resurrection period, right? We call it in Hebrew, Tachias Amesi, okay? And to tell, you how, to tell you how central it is, People don't even, they're not even attuned to this. In the second blessing of Shemona Esrei, which is the main prayer of davening, the Amida, right? The, the, the second blessing, right? We say, The one who resurrects the dead. I mean, this is like, how much more central do you need to know that it's the second thing that we say in the Shemona Esrei? So it's totally, as a central core part of the Torah vision, right? We're talking at a mass level. But individuals, no. When someone dies, they're dead. That's what it is. You don't pray that they should be resurrected, that they should come back to life. That's not a Jewish thing at all. In fact, you're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed to do it. Once they're dead, they're dead. Period. End. Okay? So now, now listen to this. So why did the rabbis, according to this explanation, not want to publicize the death of Yehuda Hanasi when he died? Because they didn't want people to stop davening that he should get better. So now if people don't know that he's dead and they're still davening for him, then maybe Hashem will make a miracle and revive him and bring him back to life. 
But without them having prayed that a dead person should be resurrected. See? So you get the best of both worlds. He comes back to life because Hashem brings him back to life based on the prayers of Israel. But without anyone having violated this precept that once someone's dead, you don't pray that they come back to life. Amazing explanation, no? Amazing. Amazing. He did not come back. However, uh, no, it didn't work. It did not work. No, he did not come back to life. He did not come back to life. However, however, there is this amazing thing, and I haven't learned the details of this, but I'm just going to give you the concept. It's, and you can try to wrap your minds around it, and it's, but it's in the Talmud. The Talmud says that. I'm not saying The Talmud's saying it. It says he would come back every Friday night and make Kiddush for his wife. Alright? And one of the explanations of how that was possible was because of these prayers that were done that it's sort of like provided, however you want to explain the mechanics of it, the divine mechanics of it, provided this extra life force or this extra connection or whatever it is. Okay? We'll have to look into it. That, that's a separate area of, you know, is phenomenology a word? <laughs> I think it might be. So, <laughs> to look into. But, but something, something very, very interesting. Um, okay. So, I want to go further on. If you want to see that, that's again in Suvos 104. Okay. So, so, I saw something that Rev Shlomo said. Actually, heard I heard him say it uh, on a tape this week that, that I thought was really something amazing. He asked a question. He said, why is it, the question itself is fascinating, why is it that Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah, was given the Torah at Mount Sinai, on the top of Mount Sinai, and you and I were, but we were at Mount Sinai, but we, we personally weren't handed the Torah on the top of Mount Sinai like Moshe was. Only Moshe was. So how come he got it and you and me didn't get it? That's what Reb Shlomo asked. So he gives an answer. He says, he says, this isn't the whole answer. He says, this is part of an answer. So he says, he says the following. He says, because if you or I hear what Hashem has to say, that's enough. But Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to hear it from God himself. Now, let's make sure that we're understanding what Rav Shlomo is saying here. It's not that, unless I hear God say it with my own ears, I don't believe it. That's not the point at all. It's that Moshe Rabbeinu was so on fire to connect with God, he wanted to hear it from God himself. And God saw how on fire he was that he let him, he, he said, okay, you're the man. Now that's, I'll just, let me, there's more to this teaching, but let me just pause for a moment. That's very special to me, on, 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 because it helps to clarify something, which sounds, after, you, after you'll hear it, tremendously obvious, but was like a new thought to me. 
which is that my understanding of Moshe Rabbeinu is probably the same as yours. I, I know the basic facts about his life. I'm sure you do too. You know, he's, he's born and, um, you know, he was like basically filled with light and they put him on the Nile and he gets saved and he grows up in Pharaoh's palace and then he has to escape. They want to kill him. And then the incident with the burning bush and then he goes in. Right? But where do you see that Moshe Rabbeinu was on fire to connect with God the whole time, right? But when you think about it, of course he was. You think that, like, the way we read the account of his life, he was like, you know, he's kind of doing his thing. And then all of a sudden God says, you're the one, you! No, not the guy behind you, you! You know, that's, that's kind of how we experience this story. But if you think about it, does that make any sense whatsoever? And, and then I realized... In other words, he, how on fire Moshe was all of the time, it had to be. Otherwise, why, how could he have been chosen to be the one to receive the Torah on the top of Mount Sinai? To enter into heaven. To enter into heaven. Right? Couldn't be, unless he was like the holiest of the holiest of the holiest. Like I say, after you hear it, it sounds obvious. But was that your impression before him? Maybe not. You know, it wasn't mine. And now when you hear that, then you say, well, wait a second, then why, why didn't the Torah talk about how he's like, yearning for Hashem and then, you know, like, like, can't sleep, he's got to connect, you know, like something like this, right? And then I realized, you know, well, it kind of does say that. It kind of does say that. You know where it says that? It says at the end that Moshe Rabbeinu was the humblest of all people. So they kind of left that out. That was part of, I think, his humility, his anivas kite, that they don't, fill in all of those those nights and days and years of in him of him dying to connect with Hashem. You know, it was it was it was part of his hiddenness, you know? You know, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov talks about different types of tzaddikim, that there's the tzaddik who's hidden. Right? And then he says there's the tzaddik whose hiddenness is hidden. <laughs> Right? So, so what does that mean exactly? The tzaddik, you know he's a tzaddik, but you don't know everything about the person, but you kind of sense that he's a tzaddik. Then there's the person who, even his hiddenness is hidden, which means you absolutely don't know. Because that sense, even that sense which, which, which would alert you that there's something more to the person, even that's hidden. Right? So, so here you have like a, almost like a double hiddenness by Moshe, which is pretty outrageous considering how much you do know about him. In other words, anyway, so, so let's keep on going. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu had to hear it from God himself. Again, not because unless he heard it from God, he doesn't believe it, but because, because that's how on fire he was. So God says, okay, you're the one to get the Torah. Now listen to this, something very, very interesting. We have the sin of the golden calf. That comes not too long after we get the Torah, right? Just 40 days, right? Now, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't participate in the sin of the golden calf because he was getting the Torah. Right? And yet, the rest of the Jewish people are sort of implicated. Although you see that really it was mostly the Arab Rav, the sort of the kind of motley assortment of people uh, from Egypt who left Egypt with us, you know? 
Because at that point, they just wanted to be attached to the Jewish people, and they joined the Jewish people. But they, you know, they... That's a whole study in itself, who the Arab Rav were, and, and all the rest. And, and they made the golden calf, but we didn't stop it. And, okay, so it's... Everyone gets implicated, basically. But... But the women, it says, didn't participate in it, and we know the Levium didn't participate in it, and whatever. And yet, it seems to be a, a blanket problem that, that we're all sort of part of it. Although, if you look at it, it says really only around 3,000 people were killed in terms of their direct participation. Anyway, there's a lot to it. But what I'm saying is, is that somehow we were all implicated, and yet, when you actually look at it, it didn't seem to be as widespread as, as you might otherwise think. But what's the point? The point is, is that the Torah really was given in two installments. Two main installments. The first installment was the first set of tablets, and that's what we celebrate on the holiday of Shavuos, which is coming up. And that's when we got the Torah Mount Sinai with all the pyrotechnics and everything like this. And then, and those tablets contained the written Torah and the oral Torah. Okay, it was all the, they were these miracle tablets. A lot of miracles that were connected to these tablets. Those were smashed by Moshe. And by the way, the Torah ends with an oblique reference. And when I say the Torah ends, I'm talking about the end of the fifth book. The very last line of the Torah, basically, ends with a reference to Moshe smashing the Luchas. Which is awesome if you think about it. Because that event actually happens chapters earlier. Many chapters earlier. Happens in Kisisa, which is in the book of Exodus, Shmos. Which is only the second book of five books of the Torah. And yet you see the very end of the Torah is ending with this reference to Moshe smashing the Luchas, the tablets. Which apparently, it says God loved that he did that. Okay? If you're wondering. Right? Because it says that those tablets were the handiwork of God. It says God loved that Moshe did that. Alright? Bless you. By the way, I've said it before, but it's just, I want to say, maybe just another level within it. The Torah is a blueprint of reality. Everyone knows it. And, and the end of the Torah correlates with the end of time. And the smashing of the luchos means that we're entering into a whole other dimension. In other words, the destiny of the world is to get us into a completely different dimension. This is the era that's going to take place after the resurrection of the dead. Okay? Because at that point, there's going to be no more death. It's going to be a completely different era. Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver says something unbelievable. See, we have a concept that says... It says in Kahelis, Ecclesiastes, Shlomo Melech, King Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Meaning to say, that once the world's been created, that's basically it. There's not going to be anything new. Like, original. So if that's the case, how do we understand this new reality that's going to take place after the resurrection of the dead, after Tafiyah Samesim, where no one's going to die? Right? And we're going to be transformed into these totally spiritual beings. Okay? There's a debate among the rabbis. Are we going to inhabit a body? Or are we going to be purely spiritual? 
and then there's another opinion that we're going to start off with a body, and then we're going to evolve into a purely spiritual being. No matter what, it's going to be fantastic. It's really... I'm definitely looking forward to that. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. And the world is... That's the destiny of the world. We're we're heading toward that. I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to be really awesome. But the... um, the point I'm trying to make is, is, doesn't that seem like a fundamentally new reality? How does that sync with this idea that there's nothing new under the sun? So Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who was, you know, a couple of generations removed from the Vilna Gon, but was uh, privy to his Kabbalah tradition, Masar, okay? I saw uh, uh, in, in, in his writings that he said that you have this the name of God, um, the, the Yudke Vavke. And that basically, what Hashem is going to do is He's going to use the same ingredients, but that He's going to formulate them differently. Because those four, those four names, those four letters, correlate with air, fire, water, and earth. Okay? And one of the letters is repeated twice. The letter He, because it's Yud and He and Vav and He. The bottom He, which stands for Earth, which is this realm, okay? Not the name of the planet, but this substance, this most material substance, right? Is actually a combination of the top three of air and water and fire are combined to make Earth, okay? But what's going to happen is air, water, and fire are going to be combined in a different ratio. And it's going to produce a different dimension of earth. But using the same ingredients. Okay, so this is a look in, in God's divine cookbook, so to speak. Alright? So this is, I mean, I, I love this piece of Torah because it tells you how nothing new is going to be created, and yet, nonetheless, a new reality will exist, will come into being. You see? So, so, so we're saying that the end of the Torah is you've got these miracle tablets, the handiwork of God, where the written word and, the, and the, all the explanations, right, the oral law, the Torah Shabbat Pez, we say, the Torah Shabbat Tzav, are all written on these luchos, and the Torah ends with a reference to them smashing, meaning a whole new opening is going to take place. Right? Alright. But let's get back to what Rib Shalom says. So, he says the following. Remember, we started off with the question, how come Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah and you and I didn't? So, when he was up there getting the Torah, we participated in the golden calf. Okay? Now, with the second luchos, with the second tablets, what happened was, it was only the written Torah. It wasn't the oral Torah. And now we had to work in order to bring out all the levels of meaning in the written text. And just as a side note, I wish I could tell you who pointed this out. Maybe it's the Gemara, because 
It's such a fundamental thought. And this is something for our own lives, just a very practical lesson. The first tablets we didn't keep. And those were given with tremendous fanfare and a great public display. Right? There was thunder and lightning and a chauffeur blast that got louder and louder and was heard around the world. Right? And the dead were resurrected and flowers bloomed on Mount Sinai. All sorts of amazing occurrences. Right? We didn't keep those tablets. Those tablets got smashed. But the ones that were given with no fanfare, just Moshe went right back up there, right, after a period of prayer on the first day of the month of Elul, those we kept. And it's kind of a sign to us about things in our own lives. You know, something enormous happens, you don't necessarily have to trumpet it to the whole world. You know? interesting lesson in humility and what we call being sneeze, you know? Not everything has to be advertised. And then sometimes it's a blessing that we're able to hold on to it longer. So the second tablets, the second tablets, we kept. And the second tablets, now, so to speak, here's the awesome thing, so to speak, all right, let me just make the point that Reb Shlomo makes. What, is, what does it mean, the Tor Shabal Peh? Tor Shabal Peh means that I'm learning Torah, or you're learning Torah, and all of a sudden I say, you know what, I just realized the level in what this Pasuk means. How can it use this word and that word, and not that word? It's teaching us a big lesson. And then all of a sudden you get an insight, Right? Do you know what that is? Do you know what that process... And, and obviously you're saying something that's consistent with the precepts of the Torah. You're not saying, oh, this means that... Oh, you know what this means? Ham sandwiches! It's so obvious that we can eat ham based on this. I, I'm, I'm, I just want to make sure I'm communicating. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you get an insight, right, which is consistent with the Torah vision, but it's a new insight. Right? Do you know what that is? That is God giving you the Torah directly. That's what the Torah Shabbat is. That's what the oral law is. It means that God is giving you the Torah directly. So we started off, just I want to make sure that you, you, you heard what was just said. We started off with the question, how come God gave the Torah to Moshe, not you or me? And what we ended up with is that God is giving the Torah to every single one of us directly. That's the Torah Shabbat Peh. It's an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. Okay, I just want to end with one last thought. Um, there's a there's a great verse in the Torah. It's actually in the in the in the Psalms, um, the Tehum by King David, he says, um, taste and see that God is good. And, uh, you know, I always, I always go back to the same thing whenever I hear that, which is kumquats uh, and schnauzers, which is, which, if you lived for a very, very long time, and there weren't any kumquats or schnauzers in the world, would you say to yourself, you know, there's... I feel a hole inside of me. Something is missing. I can't put my finger on it. You, you probably never would notice. You wouldn't even think of it. And yet, the fact is, is that God created these things 
purely out of his goodness. And if you want to get a little bit dramatic about it, you could even say that this is actually a proof of God's goodness, because God absolutely could have created this world and not put these things in it. And when you look at the vast variety of tastes and, and, and colors, like mauve, what is mauve doing in this world, right? Um, all of these things are, are, are evidence, are, are, are gifts, are, are just, just the plentifulness of it all is just um, such a beautiful example of, of, of God's love for us. I mean, just as, as simple as it is. So, so anyway, there's a, um, there's a Rebbe. It, it's not the Slasemis of Ger, the Slasemis that, 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 that we know. But he, there's an, an, another Rebbe uh, who's safer is, is the Sfasemis, meaning, um, you know, the sort of lips of truth, you know, speaking truth. And uh, from the dynasty of, of Rimenov. And I heard this beautiful um, mushal, like a parable, in his name, and it goes like this. So he says, there once was a king... And, you know, everyone knows when, whenever you have a king in the story, it's always talking about God. And, and whenever it's referring to his son or his child, it's always talking about us. So you have a king. And this king has a, uh, a servant who um, is rebellious. Right? He's not doing the right thing. And, and so what does the king do? The king actually takes this rebellious servant and he gives him a promotion. So, sort of surprising, right? And the king puts him and makes him his right-hand man. And what happens? The servant sees how glorious the king is, and how wonderful the king is, and all of a sudden he starts to feel very bad, because he says, I can't believe I did all those bad things before. Now when I really see who the king is, and how great the king is, you know, I never want to do anything wrong against the king for the rest of my life. So then, once the king sees that the servant gets it, he gives him a demotion. Right? But why is he giving him a demotion? So that, so that from his place now, he can rise up on his own. So this is the way it is with us and God. We go through all of these cycles. It's, it's a very amazing process our lives and, 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 and what we go through. And, and, and what we have to understand is, is that a lot of times we, we reach this big sort of like feeling of closeness with God and then all of a sudden we don't feel it so much anymore. And what that is is that it's a demotion so that we can go and earn it back on our own now. Because we got it initially as a free gift and now God is giving us the chance to earn it ourselves so that it's even more meaningful and even more real. And, you know, you see it very much in terms of this sphere of period right now, which is that, um, which is that uh, there, there are all these different levels, sort of like Chesed is the highest level, and then it goes down a notch to Gevorah, and then to Ferret, and then Netzach, and then Yesod, and then Malchus, right? And then, it, and then um, so you have all these different levels. So basically, sometimes we feel like we're getting a demotion. But in reality, what's happening is, is that God is taking us a quantum level upwards. 
but we're just experiencing the bottom rung of the new quantum level upwards. So, I hope that's clear. In other words, in other words, we've jumped a level, but we've jumped a level and now we're at the bottom of the new level. So, even though we feel like, oh no, we're at the bottom, the reality is, is that we're at the bottom of a whole new level which is much higher. And that reality is because we got to earn it ourselves. And then we get to climb up and the same cycle happens to us again. You know, I always, I always give this as an example of what I like to call bad math. Which is, so what's bad math? Is that we feel we are as close to God or God is as close to us as we can feel His presence. And it's not true. God is close to us no matter what. No matter what. Whether we can feel His presence or not, He's right there. So, um, we just finished the 25th um, day of the Omer. And that's, that's halfway. That's halfway. Uh, because we get the Torah on the 50th day. And then, interestingly, right after the 25th, right after halfway, comes the 26th. 26th is Gamachio Yudke Vavke. So it's like, up until now, we've just been leaving Egypt. And now, all of a sudden, we sort of jump a level to 26, right? Now we're going closer to Mount Sinai, right? Before we're leaving Egypt, now we're getting so close to Mount Sinai. So anyway, it should be a great week. And... Uh, whether you're up or down or whatever it is, you should know that it's just every variation, it's just Hashem pulling you closer and closer.